You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So, Mother Jones reported last week on a raft of anti-gay legislation that's slammed into the states, Kansas, Idaho, now Arizona. And it actually passed both the House and Senate in Arizona and is sitting on Governor Jan Brewer's desk. They're calling these new anti-gay legislative efforts, these new bills, the turn away the gay law because it would legalize anti-gay discrimination based on you know what? You can say it with me. Sincerely held religious beliefs. Ostensibly, the justification for these laws are that Christian, good Christian, God-fearing bakers shouldn't have to make a wedding cake for a couple of faggots or wedding photographers who are God-fearing Christians shouldn't have to go take pictures of a lesbian's commitment ceremony because that is the devil's work. These are special carve-outs being proposed for people of faith and they argue that this isn't like Jim Crow. A lot of people comparing these laws to Jim Crow. These aren't like Jim Crow at all because – Discrimination based on sexual orientation is tied to a deeply held religious belief, whereas discrimination based on race, being opposed to interracial marriage, being opposed to the quality between the races, that's just racism. And there's no religious justification for that. Of course, there is and there was and the Bible is very radically pro-slavery and segregationists won court cases pointing to the Bible to justify anti integration efforts. There were lots of people who could cite and did cite their sincerely held religious beliefs as justification for their racism and for racist discrimination. And we're sort of wiping that out of our political memory. We pretend that that wasn't the case. We pretend that that doesn't – that didn't exist, that that didn't happen then, that the Bible wasn't on the side of the slaveholder as indeed it was and it was wielded by them very effectively. Here's a little tidbit from the New Testament, not the Old Testament, the New Testament. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be defamed. Those who have believing masters, good Christian slaveholders, must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brethren. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit from their services are believers and beloved. If anyone teaches otherwise, this is Timothy 6, 1 through 4. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit. He knows nothing. The Bible, ladies and gentlemen, was a justification for certain folks sincerely held religious belief that they should be able to hold in bondage all their lives and their children and their children and their children, African slaves. Sincerely held religious belief. And we're back to that now. Sincerely held religious belief, I shouldn't have to take pictures at your stupid fucking lesbian commitment ceremony. Now, I'm of the opinion that if – you know what? If you're a hateful wedding photographer who is doing so well in this economy that you can afford to turn away business, I don't want you taking my fucking picture at my lesbian commitment ceremony in that alternate universe where I am a lesbian having a commitment ceremony in Arizona. I don't want you to take my fucking picture. But anti-discrimination law grounded in the civil rights movement doesn't allow for that. Goods and services have to be provided equally to all comers. A publicly licensed business whose sewers 
are paid for by us all, taxes paid for by us all to build roads and public transportation that get customers to their businesses, the regulations and regulators that we pay for, all of us pay for, the environment, the business climate that we create, the the firemen, the police, all of it that make it possible for businesses to function in this country as opposed to businesses attempting to function in the chaos of governmentless Sudan, for instance. We all invest in that equally as citizens and taxpayers and we should all equally have access to the goods and services that are provided in part with our help, each one of us as a taxpayer and a citizen. You shouldn't be able to discriminate against someone based on race, religious belief, sexual orientation, marital status, military service. The list goes on and on. The laws are very detailed and the list of people that you are specifically not allowed to discriminate against in some instances, is very, very long. Includes things like you might not discriminate against people based on their genetic profile. But there's now a law sitting on Governor Jan Brewer's desk in Arizona that would legalize discrimination based on your sincerely held religious belief. They attempted, as opposed to the law as was being floated in Kansas, to put a little fig leaf over the bald and naked anti-gay animus that led to this bill being brought forth and advanced at all. They don't say you're allowed to discriminate just against gay people. You can discriminate against anybody based on your sincerely held religious belief. So if you don't want to serve Jews, you don't have to serve Jews. If you're a Satanist and you don't want to hire or employ or serve Christians, you don't have to do any of that. But we all know the real target of this law, gays and lesbians. And the law is written so broadly that you can discriminate against gays and lesbians for any reason, employment, housing. You know, If you bake a cake for a gay wedding, you're implicitly – endorsing, they believe, that gay marriage, which you think is simple. What if you rent an apartment to a gay dude who falls in love with another dude and they move in together? Are you then as a landlord being compelled to support their gay lifestyle by not evicting them? The Christian haters would argue that indeed you are and this law would protect you if you decided to turn those men out. This law would also undo LGBT civil rights protections in a handful of cities in Arizona that have it. The law is chaos and drama and disaster for gay people. It's also chaos and drama and disaster for business. The Chamber of Commerce in Arizona has come out against it. One business already with a thousand employees looking for a place to locate has told the state that it is not coming to Arizona because of this. This is a big replay for fucking Arizona potentially. They refused in the 80s to acknowledge the Martin Luther King holiday and as a result, there was a convention boycott of Arizona and the Super Bowl was moved from Arizona to Pasadena to punish the state for refusing to recognize the MLK holiday and it cost Arizona in the end $500 million. But Arizona got to go on the record being just a hateful, shitty, hot place and this, if Jan Brewer signs it, will cost Arizona. There will be boycotts. The Super Bowl is coming back to Arizona just as the NFL is about to add its first potentially openly gay player in this year's draft. The Super Bowl is coming back. You think that's going to come back, Arizona? You think there's not going to be an effort to move the Super Bowl again? You got another thing coming. John McCain today came out and urged Jan Brewer to veto this bill, senator of Arizona. The other Republican senator from Arizona whose name no one knows came out and urged Jan Brewer to veto this bill. You can come out today and urge Jan Brewer to veto this bill She's on Twitter at GovBrewer. You can also call her at 602-542-4331 or 520-628-6580 
and urge Jan Brewer to veto SB 1062. And if you have a minute, please do. Please do call or please do tweet Jan Brewer. We do not want to go down this road of everyone being empowered based on their private religious beliefs to discriminate against others with impunity. This is a danger to our democracy. It is a danger to civil discourse. It is a danger to the pluralism and tolerance that makes a country as diverse and psycho as ours hang together and hold together in the end. We cannot take one step down this road even to protect the delicate sensibilities of the baker who doesn't want to bake a big pile of sugar carb cake for the faggots. Because if we allow that, the next up is I'm not running to Jews. Next up is I'm not going to serve these Mormons. The law is written that an, a waiter in a restaurant could say there's a table of Mormons and I'm not going to wait on them because I, it violates my sincerely held religious beliefs. Mormons shouldn't eat. We don't want to go this way. Give Governor Brewer a call. Coming up today on the micro version of the Savage Lovecast, lots of your calls. And on the magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, which you can find at www.savagelovecast.com, lots more of your calls. Plus, Randy Cohen, host of Person, Place, Thing on public radio and also the former ethicist for the New York Times who comes out of ethical retirement this week to help me handle some ethics questions on the Savage Lovecast. Hey, Dan. I am a four-year-old straight male, and here's my issue. I'm a 24-year-old loser who lives with his parents, and I'm debating and trying my hand at online dating. A little background as to why my living situation is so lame. I did two years at a community college, then transferred to a four-year, lived out there for two years, got an associate's because I changed my major constantly, and I moved back home, worked a construction job for a year and a half, paid off all my debts, and banked up a bunch more cash so I could go back to school. I graduate in a year, and then I'm going to haul ass out of this hillbilly hellhole and get my own place. I'm not proud of where I'm at, but it's working out too well not to do it because I can live here and for free. And I'm going to come out debt-free, and I'm very wise with my money. I had great parents who gave me a roof over my head, and I do have a job, but it doesn't pay enough to move out without getting loans and shit. My parents and I get along pretty well, though we do drive each other crazy at times. I haven't had a problem meeting women or finding friends with benefits situations, but I'd like something at a deeper level because I'm getting a little old and the slut phase is kind of boring me now. I've just had a problem finding somebody that I can really, really connect with and get that whole partner in crime feeling you keep talking about. So I'm just wondering, if a guy lives with his parents, should he not do online dating? Is this the price I pay for being a cheap ass? You're out of school. You have your education. Sounds like you're really well-educated, well-rounded, and you are debt-free because you've been smart about living with your parents. You are a fucking catch. And according to Pew Research, 36% of all millennials, all people your age, live at home with their parents. 36%. That's 21.6 million millennials, as you people are called. 21.6 million. Half of those are women. Take your pick. So you have plenty of women to choose from who are in your exact circumstance if you want to keep it in house. Or the women that you might find online dating will have encountered other people who are living at home with their parents and there is a one in three chance that any woman who contacts you through an online dating site who's roughly your age is living at home with her parents too. So you need to disinhibit and 
stop worrying about this. And if you get any grief from someone who says, oh, my God, you live with your parents and you're X age, just say, you know what? I went to school and I lived at home so I could pay off my student loans and I am a debt-free, educated adult male who's going to get a job in his field and not have to pay his student loans off because I was smart enough to take advantage of my parents' generosity instead of getting a pussy pad and nailing a million checks. So that makes me a fucking catch. You should just say that. And any woman and any woman who hears that and doesn't go, oh, yeah, I'll be right over to suck your dick, is no one that you want to date. Hi, Dan. This is a 25-year-old female living in New York City. I've been dating my boyfriend exclusively for about seven months now, and he is planning on moving home to Brazil in about six months. He has invited me to go with him because he loves me a lot and can see a future together and possibly having a family. I'm not at that level of commitment yet, but I am really enjoying the relationship. I'd love to see where it goes. So I'm wondering if I can move down with him. If we're just going to share an apartment together, I would have no qualms about it. Can make a clean break if something goes wrong, move back home. But as most people his age in South America, he will be going back to live with his parents. So I'm wondering if I can... Uh, move with him at the expense of his parents uh, just to kind of see where this relationship is going, if I am allowed to infringe on their hospitality in that way, or if something goes wrong, if I'll just be breaking three hearts instead of one. I'd love to hear your input. Thank you. Try looking at it this way. This boy's parents want him to be happy, right? They want him to find love. You guys have just started dating. Uh, he's extended this offer to you rather than regarding it as their hospitality, although it would be a little awkward and weird to feel like you're living as a guest uh, and, and you should just throw that on the table. Best course when something's awkward is just to acknowledge the awkwardness, throw that on the table and say it's weird that I'm living with you and uh, I can't be on sort of guest mode all the time. So we're going to have to like live together as if I'm a member of the family even though I am not yet. Just like acknowledge all that. But regard what they're doing if you decide to cut and run, if you decide that the relationship isn't where you want to be for the rest of your life. Uh, regard what the parents did was an investment in their son's potential romantic future and a gamble as it would be if you were just living with him. It would be a gamble. If you were living with him and his parents, as some parents do, were giving him money to help him pay for the apartment where you two live together, they would be making an investment in your future together, Right. I understand your hesitancy and you should think it through because there will be this added pressure because you will be sort of brought into the family, not just living with a boyfriend but living with his parents. You will feel like instantly a member of the family if you can all get comfortable together and extracting yourself from that may be a little bit more emotionally complicated but you should take yes for an answer. If you really like this guy. If you're not just taking advantage, if you're not just excited about the thought of living in a foreign country and having a guide uh, and an entree really, um, if you are open to the idea of a lifetime with this guy and you want to see where that goes, allow his parents to subsidize that exploration. Be gracious, be grateful and if it doesn't work out, it was a gamble on everybody's side. Hey Dan, this is not a what should I do but what should I have done question. I dated somebody several years ago who we clicked on all levels. He was really, really cool, and we got along fantastically, probably better than anybody I've ever dated. But when we kissed, it completely turned me off, and this is why. He used his tongue more like a sword than a means to, with which to give pleasure. 
and it was like he was stabbing my mouth and I was so turned off and so worried about insulting him and hurting him that after a few dates I and we and we kissed and I realized that I just told him that I couldn't see him anymore and never really gave him a reason why. What should I have done? He's the only person I've ever dated and I'm 29 years old with lots of experience um, who kissed like this and I just don't know what I should have done. I know that he was very disappointed and very upset and hurt, but um, I just, I didn't want to hurt his feelings and tell him he's a terrible kisser. Should I have tried to change it? I don't know. Any tips, advice, it's appreciated. Thanks. You didn't want to hurt his feelings, so you dumped him without any explanation because we all know that that doesn't hurt. In fact, you know that that hurts because he told you that that hurt. And so you guaranteed hurt, right, by dumping him uh, to avoid potential embarrassment or hurt that could have been surmountable. Kissing is something that people learn to do. Maybe that was how his first girlfriend kissed or liked to be kissed. Somebody needed to say to him at some point, you could have said to him, well, like the way you kiss, the, the way you use your tongue uh, isn't the way I like to be kissed. You don't have to say the way you kiss is all wrong and nobody could possibly like the way you kiss and the whole world thinks you're a freak uh, because of the way you kiss. And anywhere you go because of this is how you kiss, you will be dumped and disparaged and driven out of town. All you need to say is – Kiss me how I like to be kissed. Let me show you. And you could have retrained him. And whatever little moment of like, oh, I'm a bad kisser, he had, however much that hurt, it would have hurt a whole lot less than being dumped hurt. And what did you cheat yourself out of? This was a guy you really liked, that you were attracted to, that you clicked with. Emotionally, romantically, there was an attraction. And you let a minor correctable issue of kissing technique derail that? That was really stupid on your part. Maybe he couldn't change his ways. There are some people who have sex quirks, kissing quirks, fucking quirks that they can't correct. You should have given him the opportunity to correct it though. So if you're in this situation, again, if anyone out there listening is in this situation, speak up. That's not how I like to be kissed. All you have to say, it's not how I like to be kissed. That person is kissing you because they want to turn you on. They want to crank you up. They're excited to be with you. Of course they want to kiss you the way you like to be kissed. But you got to tell them. Next time, caller, give the guy the opportunity to learn and grow and improve. He was young. You're only in your 20s. He was in his 20s. Somebody needed to say something to him at some point. And it could have been you. And had it been you, who knows? You two could still be together. Hi, Dan. I am a bisexual girl, uh, age 22, from the Midwest, and I have a question for you. Um, I just started dating someone new. We've been dating for about a month and a half, and he recently told me that he uh, was a virgin before I met him. Uh, he's 24. So uh, my past relationship was kind of controlling and he was definitely not okay with the fact that I was bisexual. It was something that he had me hide and cover up and didn't ever want me to really talk about it. So now here I am with this new guy and he's just wonderful and he is kind of into the fact that I'm bisexual. I It's really, really nice for me to be able to be open about it and to make comments about women that I see and to make jokes about me liking pussy. It's just fun. Uh, so I, I want to have a threesome 
And I know that he's comfortable with it. I mean, I've mentioned it before. I'm pretty sure he's comfortable with it. But I don't want to scare him away because he's new to the whole world of sex and to be thrown in with someone like me who's kind of exploratory and rambunctious. I don't know. I just don't know what to do with it or how to get that, take that step or get it going. I don't want to scare him away and I don't want to seem too, like, too much for him, I guess. Here's what you do. You play this call for your boyfriend. Or if you don't want to do that, you say to him, I'm exploratory and I'm rambunctious. Uh, great words. and I love that you use them. Um, but I don't want to scare you away and I don't want to go too fast. Uh, but there's these things, these adventures I'd love to have and I'd love to have them with you if uh, and when you're ready to have them. Problem solved. Then – the three-way is opt-in, then he is empowered to say yes or no, not right now, uh, and to take things a little, a little slowly and, and at his pace. So go for it. And, and that said, you know, the fact that he's a young 20-something virgin and you're his first girlfriend, being young and inexperienced does not preclude an interest in jumping into the deep end of the pool. He might be anxious to go off and do these things. I lost my virginity in a three-way. So it's not like three ways and virgins or near virgins or recent virgins don't necessarily mix well. They do. But go and ask him what he wants, how quickly he wants to get there, what he's interested in, what he's not interested in and be considerate and thoughtful and let him opt in if he's ready. Hey, Ben. This is a 32-year-old hetero flexible male calling from the Rocky Mountains. And I have a question for you regarding – communication etiquette and expectations with a married couple that you are having threesomes with. Um, I recently stumbled into some threesomes while traveling, totally dug it, got the itch. Um, and now that I'm back home, I started looking for couples who are interested in a third online on Craigslist and um, found a great couple. We started talking. It was pretty rapid back and forth, a lot of interest, sending pictures, and um, within a week, you know, uh, we got together. Not all three of us, just uh, me and the guy. He wanted to kind of vet me. The girl wasn't uh, totally convinced yet, the wife. And um, and I was fine with that because the guy, you know, in, in the post that he wanted, a, you know, a third for regular threesomes and also maybe a, you know, a fit younger guy on the side for for some fun for just him. So that's what we did. And um, now that we've kind of hooked up, fucked around, had a good time, I don't really know where we stand. They're married. I'm obviously single. I have more flexibility. And I don't know if I need to be waiting for them to call, if I can call and ask if they're available or text or however we communicate and show my interest. Um, I, I, I know that they have their own life. I think they have some kids. I don't want to intrude. I don't want to be that weirdo calling and texting often. But, um, you know, I was responding to a post, so obviously they're interested. And um, I'm just unfamiliar with this territory. I love how it looks. I like walking through it. I just need um, my hand held a little bit, I think. So where do I stand? What should I do in terms of communicating? How much should I be in touch with them? Can I text them? Should I wait for them to be in touch with me? Any advice would be much appreciated. Thanks, Dan. Because I'm a naturally suspicious person, because I think people can be liars and underhanded and shitty, I'm actually, as I listen to your call, I'm just sitting here wondering, 
does the wife really exist? You went on Craigslist. You offered yourself up as uh, heteroflexible or bisexual. You didn't say which. Uh, unicorn interested in a couple and you heard from someone who you wanted up texting with a bunch or emailing with a bunch. Um, I'm curious and I wish you'd left a phone number. I would have called you back to know if you had any interactions with the wife, if there were separate email accounts, if there were picture swaps. And their pictures were varied where you saw people in and out of clothes and together and enough pictures to know that these have been taken over time and um, they weren't just grabbed from somebody else's site. Because I know that there are dudes who go on Craigslist and misrepresent themselves as straight or misrepresent themselves as half of a couple, a heterosexual couple to attract the buyer flexible guy and then to audition the buyer flexible guy for his wife who doesn't exist. And the guy who's being auditioned might be – fine with it and into the sex with the dude but into the sex with the dude in the context of sex with a woman also or sex with the woman soon. So I listened to your call and if the guy showed up and fucked you and you guys had a good time and then he disappeared and you haven't heard from him again, it just makes me think that there's no wife and you're not going to hear from him again because he can't produce the wife that he promised you as a part of the deal and as what you were auditioning for. Um, all that said, you have a right to show an interest. You are a unicorn. You are into quote unquote them if quote unquote they exist. Uh, and so you're totally within your right to send him an email saying that was fun. I'm really anxious to get together with you and your wife uh, and to to see if we click the three of us. And then if you never hear from him again, maybe you failed the audition and the wife exists and I'm too suspicious a person. Or maybe the wife doesn't exist and you're not going to hear from him again because he got what he wanted out of you at that one meeting. And if you never hear from him again, you're a unicorn. You're in demand. Male unicorns, a little less demand than female unicorns, but unicorns still and in demand still move on, find somebody else. However, in the future, trust but verify when someone says it's me and somebody else, you might want to ask for proof of someone else's existence or insist as the unicorn is interested in a three-way situation that that first meeting where there will be no sex, which is always a better policy than a first meeting that jumps to sex, be with all of you because you want to meet the other person, not just the person you're talking to and make sure everyone's on the same page and everyone is into you being a part of their sex thing. Hi, Dan. My question is my boyfriend and I have been together for about a year and we talked about ditching condoms. He asked to ditch condoms, and I said, yeah, great. Like, let's both get tested, printed results, because I trust but verify. I'm already on birth control, so that's not an issue. I then went and got tested and, you know, showed him the printout of the results, and he still hasn't gone. Um, his two points are, one, that it's been almost a year there are any diseases, they would have popped up by now because we don't use any sort of protection for oral. And the second is that he doesn't want to get blood pulled from the crook of his arm. It's whatever, doesn't want it blood pulled from there, so doesn't want to get tested. And my responses are, A, just get tested in terms of stuff showing up, you never know when stuff's going to show up. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. And B, get blood pulled from somewhere else. Blood through, runs through every part of your body. And, I mean, people shoot up in weird places, so I'm sure they can pull the blood out of any other place besides the crook of your arm. 
And I would love to know your opinion on this. Am I being unnecessarily clinging to rules or am I being unreasonable? What do you think the best course of action is? It's possible for a man to have gonorrhea and not know it. And gonorrhea is spread uh, through exchanges of fluids so that you've been using condoms all this time. Uh, and even if you've had oral sex, you've been using condoms all this time for vaginal intercourse. It's possible that he has gonorrhea and you have been exposed. You could have oral gonorrhea, um, which doesn't cause pain upon urination, of course. So it's trickier to diagnose and treat. Many people who have oral gonorrhea don't even realize it. So the fact that you're STI-free – please don't say clean. People who have STIs are not dirty, disgusting, disease pariahs. Um, the fact that you are you are free of STIs at this moment doesn't prove that he is STI-free himself. Uh, you guys could be having sex for a year. Not every exposure when you have sex with somebody who has a sexually transmitted infection, that is an exposure. Not every exposure results in an infection. You could have been having sex with him for a year and not have, and been risked exposure multiple times perhaps and never had an infection take. So he could have an STI right now, a treatable STI that he could get treatment for. That's what treatable STIs are. They are treatable and there are treatments. Um, so he's going to have to pussy up and go get a needle stuck in his baby arm and have some blood drawn and the swabs taken and get a full battery of tests. You need to draw a little line in the sand and say, you want to go condom free? I am willing to do that after you do this. After you do what I have done, stop being a baby. Getting some blood drawn is the price you pay for condom free sex with me. If that's not a price you're willing to pay, here's a case of condoms. Stand your ground. Hi, Dan. I have a problem with slut shaming myself. I go out, I do whatever I want, and I'm safe completely. And the next day, I feel incredibly guilty. Always. I feel like I have done something wrong. I feel like I've done something terrible. And I feel like I have every STD in the book and I am incredibly safe. I'd like to hear your thoughts about somebody slut shaming themselves. Nobody else slut shames me. It's just me. I feel bad about it. I feel terrible. So just jumping right in, when you say you're incredibly safe and you say you go out and do whatever you want, what are you talking about exactly? Be specific. When I say I'm incredibly safe, I like normally hands hands only. Oh, so you're That's just situation. Oh, you're that is incredibly safe. You're just doing JO and rolling around, Boy Scout stuff. Um, I mean, on occasion, there's more than that, but like I'm like in general, like I'm normally like a super hands-on type of person, like <laughs> like not. Not much more than that. Yeah, hands-on, not mouth-on, not ass-on. No. Okay. I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, occasionally, yes, but most of the time it's just, like, fooling around in a super safe way. Which is awesome. And those occasional times when you do get ass-on, you're using condoms? Absolutely. Good. The last time I had sex without a condom was with a woman, like, 12 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and I uh, and I hope nothing horrible uh, came of that. So, oh it, no, no. It, it sounds like you are, as you say, incredibly safe. But there are two things at work when we jump into bed with people. There's sexual safety which is about mitigating those risks, uh, reducing them. They cannot be eliminated for sexually transmitted infections. There's also emotional safety. Right, right. And if you're leaving all of these encounters feeling terrible, one of two things is at work there. Either you're struggling with issues of shame uh, around being gay and having gay sex that were pounded into your head during your upbringing or just sort of floating out there in the culture and you tap into those and post-orgasm, post-messing around, that all rises to the surface and you have to conquer that. Or B or two, <laughs> that's one, or two, you um, aren't enjoying these things on some fundamental level. That it's not emotionally – you don't feel emotionally safe during them or after them. It's not emotionally satisfying. Whatever you're trying to leverage into your life with your dick, this messing around, these encounters ain't it. I mean I mean that's definitely – I mean there's there's definitely no shame in in – the gay thing. Like mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worried about that at all. Like, like I didn't, I didn't grow up feeling like that was wrong. My parents didn't give me, they never really gave me shit for it. Like it was like, I was lucky mm -hmm. and I, I wasn't raised in like a religious family. So there's no like religious aspect to it. So it couldn't be like an, an emotional thing. Like I guess like the best, <laughs> It sounds really silly, but like the best example that I thought of, like when I really felt like shameful mm -hmm. was when I was in Vegas and I, I went to a bathhouse mm -hmm. and didn't let anybody touch me, but I ended up, I guess, you know, um, finishing on a totally, completely willing participant and I left and got into the cab and just like burst into tears. I think because I just felt like what I was, what I did was dirty. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and that's what I can't wrap my head around is like, like when I leave certain situations that feel, um, I guess disconnected, emo it, like, like when there's no emotion, that's when I feel shameful about it. Okay. Well, shame – let's set shame aside, shame or no shame. When there's no emotion, the sex leaves not just your balls feeling drained but you you feeling emotionally drained and you feel emotionally vulnerable. So this is a case of doctor, doctor, it hurts when I go like this and the doctor looking at you and saying, well, don't go like that or don't come like that in this instance. If right. you, you know yourself well enough now to know that blowing a load on some stranger at a bathhouse, whoever consensual it is, however safe it is, leaves you in the wake feeling not so hot because right. you – your sexuality, perhaps the way you're wired is contradictory in a way because you're wired to, to be horny, to be a dude, to want to seek this release and women are horny and they want release too. But you're wired that way to you know want to get out there and have fun and blow your loads. But you're also wired in a way where – when you blow a load disconnected from any sort of emotional connection, it leaves you feeling terrible. So don't do it. Don't blow your loads that way. Better to stay home and masturbate. Oh, I do that plenty too. <laughs> I assumed as much. But better – you know, when you, when you think, I, you know, I'm so horny I'm going to go to a bathhouse because I can get it right now or I can have an erotic sort of experience right now, blow this load. You just have to say to yourself, yeah, last time I did that, I felt like shit. So I'm not going to do that because it leaves me feeling like shit.
I mean, right. But, uh, but I mean, it, there is like a, a certain thrill that comes along with maybe the exhibitionism mm-hmm. of it is a turn on for me. And, and maybe that's the locus of your shame, the exhibitionism of it. Maybe it's not the gay thing. Maybe it's the kink dimension. It, it could be. I mean, it could be, but I mean, that's the thrill of it. And then all of a sudden I'm just like, Oh my God, I just did that in a semi public area. Have you ever been in a long-term relationship? Yeah. Are you in I've one been, now? I've been, I, I've been in, I've been in two really long-term relationships. And I think the first one is probably where the shame came from because my boyfriend at the time was so terrified of me cheating on him that he basically instilled it in my head. Like if you cheat on me, you will get a disease type of thing. I don't, I don't, I don't see how that's related to sex shame in the wake of blowing a load on an anonymous stranger in a bathhouse, that fear of disease, because you've eliminated the risk for disease, right? Yeah. But he always, he always made me feel bad for being sexually adventurous. Okay. Well, that's a different thing. Okay. And people do do that and you can allow this ex-boyfriend who is history and in the past and no longer in your life to continue to dominate your psyche in this way. But why would you? And I think you may be pinning something on him that's not entirely his doing. Did you – do the other boyfriend that you had, have you ever had a boyfriend with whom you could go out and have these sorts of sexual adventures together where no. this kind of sexual adventuring was a part of your intimate bond and your shared sort of – romantic connection with another human so it wasn't so disconnected emotionally never somebody that i could share that experience with and now right now are you are you finding yourself pursuing these encounters that leave you feeling empty and unhappy and that's soaking up the the kind of energy and drive that you could be putting into finding a relationship and a boyfriend someone you could have a connection with because I think that's a problem for a lot of gay men. This stuff is so easy for us to get. Relationships yeah. are hard to find. Some dude in a bathhouse who'll let you blow a load on him, that's easy to find. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes you need the pressure of horniness to do the work to find a boyfriend. But if you're always running to, you know, and blowing that load, always using that release valve, it can, it can really screw up your pursuit of a romantic connection and you sound like the kind of guy who needs that romantic connection and you can have that kind of romantic connection with a guy who isn't going to shame you about this shit. A, the kind of guy who would want to go and do this shit with you. Those guys are out there and then you two would leave a bathhouse or an encounter with a third together being feeling closer and, and happy about how much fun you two have together as a couple erotically. Not just fun as a couple at the movies or the ball game, but fun as a couple <laughs> at wherever you just blew loads on some other dude very hyper safely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I never thought about finding somebody that that would want to do that with me. I guess. Well, do there are other guys like you out there? Yeah, yeah. Don't settle for someone never... who's going to shame you about something as you know as intrinsic to your sexual expression and your erotic inner life as this exhibitionistic streak, if that's a part of who you are and if that's always going to be something that's on the table for you sexually, always something that's coming from inside of you sexually, find someone who values that and appreciates that and is aroused by that and who shares that. When you date and you should date, when you date, be like, I thought, you know, I'm totally, I've had a couple long-term relationships, totally down with Long term, you know, with a long term boyfriend, I'm into you know everything: column A, column B, column C. Um, 
But you know, I, I also this is you know I also like to have some erotic adventures, totally safe, jo only, and sort of show off a little bit and check out other dudes. Put that on the table, and a guy who's like never, then you're like, okay, well, it was nice to meet you. Thank you. Goodbye. And you don't roll right. this out. You don't roll this out before the salad comes. Not that anyone goes out on dinner <laughs> dates anymore, but you don't roll this out right away, you know, in the course right. of like getting to know each other. When you start sharing, opening up more, sharing your sexual history, sharing your fantasies, you just throw this on the table. And so many guys do this sort of stuff, gay guys. Right. That right. you're going to find a guy in short order. I really do think after drilling down here on this with you that that's the key. You need to find a way to have this stuff. And have it not mean the opposite of intimacy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, have it be fun and and not and emotionally connected to, to go you. home and be, yeah, right. Yeah. An emotion. There being an emotional connection. Maybe the emotional connection is between you and your partner when you do these things together. Maybe the emotional connection is knowing that you can go home to someone from one of these experiences and share it with him, and he will find it arousing, and it'll be something that he actually likes about you. And also, sometimes. Gay people do this. Straight people do this. They'll do their sort of crazy sexual adventuring shit with people that disgust them, with people that they look down on, right? Mm -hmm. And then you'll feel disgusting after it's over because you just got with someone disgusting. And, and, and the person objectively might not be disgusting at all. People just round them up to disgusting. Like I'm doing this like crazy, dirty, degrading thing with someone who's icky and dirty and look, they're doing this icky, dirty thing with me. They must be icky and dirty. After you come, you feel kind of icky and dirty too. Right, you, right. You should do these things with people you like. Even if you've only spent a tiny bit of time with them, round them up to someone I like. Round them up to somebody that – if circumstances were different, if you both weren't on vacation in Las Vegas and at some crazy bathhouse, maybe you could see yourself dating this person. Don't do this shit with people that you think are scum because you will feel scummy once you're done. Agreed. Yeah. I, I never thought about forming a relationship with somebody who enjoyed – I don't know, enjoyed that sort of – Thing. And, and, but I, I, I could. Yes, you could. And you know what? Every guy you've done this sort of thing with, you've had a relationship with. You've had a very, very short-term relationship with them, but you had something of a relationship with them. So maybe next time just like be like, can I get your number so we can do this again? Can I get your number so we can do this again? That was hot. You're really fun. <laughs> right, right. right? Even, if you, even if you can't see them again, just be like, hey, that was really fun. You're a really nice dude. That was hot. Enjoy, you know, have fun, be safe. Like have a moment where you acknowledge their humanity instead of just putting your dick back in your pants and bolting. Oh, see, yeah, I know. No, I'm always very polite. <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> You've shed some light. That makes me, I mean, I feel, I feel less dirty today. Good. Good luck. Thank you so much. It's You're so welcome. nice to hear your voice in person. Uh, it was my pleasure talking to you. Hi, Dan. I need some advice on a very unique situation. My brother has been in the hospital for a week in a temporary medically induced coma. Uh, it has been my responsibility to inform his friends of his uh, ongoing medical progress. I'm also in possession of his phone and turned it on in order to gain access to contacts I couldn't reach via Facebook or from my own phone. Throughout the week, he has been receiving texts and well wishes to this phone. However, he has also been receiving texts from a number that are very, very sexual. I'm not trying to read them, but his phone displays the full message on his lock screen, uh, so I kind of can't help it. I pieced together that he started seeing someone recently from other friends, and this number could be that person. She, she has messaged him throughout the week, and I don't see any sign of it stopping. 
However, I don't see a way of contacting her without also implying that I have seen these incredibly explicit texts. With so much heaviness going on, thankfully this has offered some levity to this terrible situation. However, I'm really torn on how to proceed. Do I have a responsibility to contact this person and let them know what is going on? Let's pretend for just a second that you or I, that, that we together, you and I together, are the person sending these texts to your brother. Maybe this person, this woman, uh, is the person that you've heard from friends of your brother that, that he's been dating. And she's sending these texts, texts, dirty texts, flirty texts. Maybe that was part of their relationship. Maybe that's part of what your brother really likes about her. Um, and not hearing anything back and sending more and not hearing anything back and sending more and not hearing anything back. Uh, if you were her, if we were her and we were in her shoes, which would be worse to get a brief, polite, concise text uh, on that phone, from that phone, saying, this is David, whatever your brother's name is. This is David's brother. David has had a medical emergency. He's in the hospital. He's not receiving messages right now. He'll be in touch as soon as he's on his feet. She may think, oh, my God, his brother had my text. But then she'll know what's going on. And you don't have to buy into uh, – the, the only reason you hesitate is sex shame, really. Your brother was having sex with this person or they have some sort of sexual connection or sexy texty relationship and you hesitate to contact her because the conversation that was going on on this phone was sexual. If they were talking about work, if they were talking about restaurant plants, they were talking about snowboarding, if they were talking about you getting all these texts from somebody about the election, class or anything else, you would respond immediately to this person. You would care that this person – was out there missing your brother, wondering where your brother was, you would respond without hesitation to say exactly what was going on to inform that person, to put that person's mind at ease. The only reason you haven't reached out to her to put her mind at ease is because of the sexual nature of her texts. And you think that she will be embarrassed and mortified that you saw these texts. It is worse, I think, to not know what the hell is going on, to perhaps think you've been rejected, to a quick, concise not winky. You sound a little upbeat about your brother being in a medically induced coma uh, and in – they don't medically induce comas for shits and giggles. I'm sorry that your brother is hurting um, and your family is facing this medical crisis. But don't send a text that has the same tenor of your call, which is a little playful if I may. Uh, I don't want to criticize you. People process trauma and grief in their own ways and medical crisis and you can't be somber and serious 24 hours a day when you face something like that down. Remember my grandfather was dying in our, our house. There were morbid and black jokes all the time. So I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm just saying when you send that text to her, don't joke. Just be straight. Brother – Medically induced coma, hospital, emergency, he will be in touch. If you know that he's going to survive this and he'll be coming out of it, say we know he's, he's going to be OK. I'm sure he'll be in touch when the worst is over. And then she'll probably text you back and say, I'm so sorry that you had to see all that. And you say, no problem. That's all you got to do. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-ish male and I've been in a mostly vanilla monogamous relationship with a great woman in her mid-20s for a little over a year now. Our sex life is great, for me at least, but a few months ago we hit kind of a rough patch when she didn't seem to be enjoying it, and I'm the kind of guy who doesn't really get as much out of sex if my partner isn't having a good time. I told her about my concerns, and she assured me that she was happy and enjoying herself, and since then her pleasure has been more apparent, moaning and moving around and so forth. It may be worth noting that she's also told me that she's never had an orgasm. Not that she's never had one with me or never had one during sex, but that she's just flat out never had one. 
since I'm not a woman and I have no idea what it's like to be one, I don't know if maybe she has had orgasms and she just doesn't know it since there really isn't a guidebook explaining anywhere. This is what your orgasm will feel like. Or if she just hasn't figured out her own body well enough to have one, or maybe she just can't. Again, I'm not a woman. I don't know. The problem is that even though she claims to be enjoying our sex life and she's the one who initiates sex a fair share of the time, I'm still worried that she's just faking it for my benefit. I want to try to tease out at her fantasies and fetishes, like uh, she likes light bondage porn, for example. Um, so I'd like to explore that with her. But in the meantime, the worry that she's faking it is putting a bit of performance anxiety on me. So here's my question, and it's more of a psychology issue than strictly a relationshipy issue. I'm pretty sure I know the advice you'd give here would be to learn to take yes for an answer. If she says she's enjoying it, <clears throat> and she seems like she's enjoying it, I should just accept that. But whether that's your advice or not, my question is, how? How do you just stop feeling a certain way about something? It sounds a lot like telling somebody with depression to just stop being depressed. It isn't as simple as just flipping a switch, or at least if it is, I don't know where that switch is located in my brain. It's spooky. I was listening to your call and I wrote on my notepad, take yes for an answer. And 30 seconds later, you said, I know what you're going to say, Dan, take yes for an answer. Yes, that is what I'm going to say. Take yes for an answer. Remind yourself that there are a lot of reasons that people have sex, that sex and we come at straight men with from both barrels, two different sides, two angles on this. We say you must prioritize a woman's pleasure. You should care about her being orgasmic. You should be invested in her orgasms. It's terrific that you don't enjoy sex if your partner isn't also deriving pleasure from it. On the other hand, then we say we shouldn't guilt trip women uh, about who may be anorgasmic, who may have difficulty climaxing. You shouldn't, as a straight guy, view female sexuality through the I blew my load prism that so many straight guys view their own sexuality, that it is sex and you had sex if you came. And straight guys, after we say, oh, you should have to prioritize a woman's pleasure and her orgasm and don't be an asshole or a dick who doesn't care if the woman he's with comes or not, then we turn around and say, but it's okay if she doesn't come and you need to be chill about that. Sex doesn't always have to end in an orgasm. There are women who – are anorgasmic, who have difficulty climaxing. Um, it could just be a stage of life thing. She could be just coming into her own body. You don't say whether she masturbates or not. I would, if I was talking to her, ask her that. Does she climax when she's alone? Is there a way for her to relax and incorporate that kind of masturbation or play, whatever it is that works for her solo, into your sex together? Um, but all that said, you know, if the answer is I've never had an orgasm, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to have an orgasm, a certain small percentage of women can't. But I really enjoy sex. I enjoy the intimacy. I enjoy the pleasure, the physical contact. I love sex even though I am not climaxing. That is a legitimate response. That is a legitimate reason to have sex. A lot of people have sex without climaxing occasionally. Some people all the time and they still get off emotionally, romantically. They get off on the intimacy. They get off on the connection. They get off on the other person's pleasure even if they're not technically getting off themselves. So that is the yes that you have to take for an answer. She initiates sex with you. She enjoys it. Take yes. That is a big yes. Take it for an answer. And then have conversations with her about masturbation, about – without it 
mau-mauing her, without pressuring or hustling her, without making her having an orgasm, some sort of referendum on your bedroom skills, but just open conversations about self-pleasure and whether she's ever used a vibrator and masturbating and all these other issues. Because maybe you're the key then to help her unlock her orgasmic capacity, right? Maybe she's never thought about masturbation. Maybe she's never tried a Hitachi magic wand or a bullet or whatever other vibrator out there uh, could do it for her. But with your gentle encouragement and your not regarding incorporating sex toys or encouraging her to masturbate as some sort of failure on your part to work all the magic with your dick or your tongue, she could get there. But in the meantime, again, yes, yes, yes. Take those yeses for a fucking answer. G'day, Dan. My name is Alice. I'm from Australia, and I'd like to know what you think about giving or attempting to give someone herpes because they have a really intense fetish to catch it. I've had herpes for about three years, and I was approached by a guy on an STD-based dating website who, kind of long story short, told me he didn't have herpes, um, but the reason he was on there is because he really wants to catch it. Um, he's very sweet, he's kinky, good-looking, a little bit younger than myself, so basically exactly my type. Other safe sex issues aside to do with having unprotected sex, obviously, I'm interested to know if you think that this is an okay thing for me to indulge him in. Um, his fantasy of me trying to give it to him. He's really keen for me to have sex with him when I have an active outbreak and attempt to deliberately pass it to him. He finds the idea hot because... It's something I'm giving him that he'll have forever and signs the thought of me infecting him to be really a big turn on. Um, I've tried to do some research about this online and I only came up with blood catching in terms of AIDS. I don't personally see herpes as a big deal. I really have any outbreaks and even more really get knocked back by a potential partner when I disclose. Um, initially when he told me I was pretty shocked and squicked out but I was also kind of honoured that he trusted me to share such a personal and unusual turn on so we kept in contact and I think you know he has a good understanding about it but I'm a bit concerned that perhaps I'm too excited about the prospect of being able to have unprotected sex without worrying about passing it on that I'm missing some kind of ethical responsibility. Ethics isn't necessarily my strong suit. I give sex advice, but there are people out there who handle ethics. There are ethicists. And joining me now for 12 years, Randy Cohen wrote The Ethicist for The New York Times Magazine. Uh, he was and always will be the ethicist for me. Uh, he's now the host of Person, Place, Thing, a terrific public radio show. And you can hear it via the podcast at personplacething.org. Hey, Randy, thank you for jumping on the phone with us today. Thanks for having me on, Dan. I feel like I'm, I'm once again putting on my rusty armor. <laughs> Getting out your uh, ethicist sword and shield. Yeah, I thought, I, you know, you think you're getting out and they drag you back in. It's like, be, like giving advice, a little like being mobbed up. So this question, um, th this woman has met something I've never heard of, a herpes chaser. We've heard of bug chasers who are uh, kind of demented, in my opinion, gay dudes who are out there trying to get infected. Uh, there's only There were only a handful of them, but we had a big sex panic and moral panic about them about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because, you know, when it comes to gay men, it's always more fun to talk about the sickest and most demented in the bunch and not the average or the, the norms. 
I think that's true of life in general. Yeah, that is true of life in general. But it kind of annoys me when everyone's always running out the the worst examples as if they are illustrative of the the mean. Um, so that's true. So here we have uh, this woman who's encountered a herpes fetishist, and he wants to risk exposure for whatever reason. Uh, let's not dig into his brain. What is the what is her responsibility to him ethically? If he if well, he consents to unprotected intercourse, not just because he's not concerned about getting infected, but anxious to get infected, what is her responsibility? Yeah, consent is, is is the interesting thing that it turns on that that consent is necessary, but it's not sufficient. That it doesn't absolve you of deciding if it's right for you to do something. And, and the the question at the heart of that is: Will you be doing serious, durable harm? Um, and I think, you know, herpes isn't as fearful as it was 25 years ago, but by my standards, yeah, that's serious, durable harm. And, and I, I looked at some papers that the CDC puts out, the Centers for Disease Control, um, and, and here, here's the problem, I think, that if he then passes on herpes to someone else, it's a particular danger to pregnant women. There, there really is a serious risk, mm-hmm. and he himself faces a significantly increased risk of HIV. Um, and to impose that on another person, I, I think that's that's beyond my threshold. Mm-hmm. Now, how how would your position differ then if, as is the case, you know, there's a lot of people out there who have herpes. There's a lot of people out there who don't know they have herpes. There are people in long-term relationships with people who have herpes who have gotten – who are no longer using latex or condoms. They want to be intimate and they're willing to shoulder the risk. Right. That's a different matter. Here it's where intent counts, when you're making a moral choice. Um, if you're just willing to shoulder the risk and you, you may happen to incur this disease, so be it. But if you're deliberately trying to pass it on to someone, that's a very different matter. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she, um, no, no, no. It's not about her deliberately trying to pass it on. It's about him deliberately attempting to acquire it. She, she's anxious, as, as many people with herpes are, to have sex again without having to be paranoid, without having to worry about covering everything up. And there's a lot of people who they call it zero sorting among HIV positive guys where they seek out other HIV positive guys for partners because they don't want to have to worry and they don't want to have to feel like they're a disease vector. Does she have some right to seek out this kind of freedom? Um, she does. She does. Um, if it's just, oh, she's with someone else and, and her partner knows she has the virus and they, they're both willing to risk it, that's not a problem. But here I think because he deliberately wants to contract the disease, that, then, then having unprotected sex means she's a partner to that and that, that changes everything. Then she's in effect deliberately trying to give this guy um, a, a, a serious medical risk. Well, it seems to me to be a distinction almost without a difference that – she, she can have unprotected sex with someone who is willing to run the risk but would rather not get herpes, but she can't have unprotected risk sex with someone That's who's right. willing to run the risk because he does want to get herpes. Yes, intent counts. And here's the example um, Dr. Johnson gave. He said, if, if you throw a coin to a beggar with, with the intent of his buying a meal, you're doing good. But if you throw the coin to him uh, with the intent of busting his skull, you're doing something <laughs> wicked. That, that it can be the same action, but it has a very different meaning depending on your intent. The other element that we were batting around um, before we jumped on the phone with you is 
you know, there's the concern about him acquiring HIV, but there's also the concern or the concern about him acquiring herpes in this way. But her, what about her concern of acquiring other sexually transmitted infections? Like you said, having herpes puts a person at higher risk of acquiring HIV. This guy is out there seeking unprotected intercourse with people he knows to have an STI. What other STIs might he have, even if he's unaware of, of having them, that she could be putting herself at risk? She's got- right, that's a really good point. Well, it's more a medical question than a moral question. Um, she she can choose to, to take on whatever risk she she wants to, as long as she knows he should inform her of, of any risk she's facing. But but ethics is w- what she does to other people, not what other people do to her. How does that standard not apply to her in that case with him? Because she has to decide for herself whether she can engage in this act. Would she? It, would it be immoral for her to do this to mm-hmm. deli- to to part, be a partner in deliberately giving him this this uh, disease? And in my view, yeah, it would be. She can't deliberately infect him with herpes. Um, there's another there's another aspect of this that, that I found out from the CDC, which is as just as a technical challenge, if he wants to get this disease, he shouldn't be sleeping with women. He should be sleeping with men. Um, that that first of all, uh, only about um, the, the chances of female to male transmission are quite low. Um, the the chances of male to female transmission are quite high, and it's reflected in who has the virus. That one in five women, mm-hmm. age fourteen to forty nine. Have the HSV2 virus, but only one in nine men. It's really, really hard for a woman to give this to a man. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old hetero woman, and um, I have a question about etiquette. Um, I recently uh, met somebody, and um, he was really great, and we slept together right away. And then, like responsible adults, after having sex, we asked each other when we had last been tested, and we both had been tested recently and were clean, and I said somewhat glibly, you know, I do have HPV, but who doesn't, which is true. I do have it, I'm, you know. Um, and then he later, um, in a different conversation, told me that his house has bed bugs. And I got really mad at him. He jumped in my bed twice by that time without telling me that. And uh, I called it irresponsible of him and unfair and selfish and deceitful. And he said, how is it any different from me not telling him that I had HPV? And at the time, that seemed really ridiculous um, because, like I said, it seemed to me that everybody has HPV. But I don't know. I, I talked about it with my best friend, and she said, this is a question for Dan Savage, which is actually worse, or are they about the same me, it seems like possibly giving someone bed bugs is way worse than possibly giving them HPV. Um, am I wrong? I would love to hear your opinion on this. I have a beef with this call because I think HPV is a sexually transmitted infection that you do need to disclose. Um, I'm on the side of disclosure in all cases uh, to protect the person who's doing the disclosing. But HPV, while for most people is trivial – um, most people clear the virus, um, but when the caller says that all adults have it, no, 26-ish percent of all adults have it. Um, so for her to say, well, you know, I have HPV, but that doesn't matter because you have it, I have it, we all have it, isn't true. So I, I detect an ethical lapse and a self-justification there that's kind of bogus baloney pony in my opinion. But 
She didn't disclose that. He didn't disclose bed bugs. Do they deserve each other? Or in your opinion as an ethicist, who is in the wrong? Uh, they're both in the wrong. That's what's so great about, about ethics is that they can make everyone feel really horrible. Uh, <laughs> and I can be the bearer of that news. Uh, I'm with you on disclosure, e- even though um, it, it's, the HPV exposure is pretty common in the population. Um, you, you, it's, it's not 100%. It's not even 50%. You should let people know so they can make these choices for themselves. I, I'm with you there. But I, she's... Oh, oh, wait, before, before you go on, I do want to jump in and say that people who have casual sex... Um, and jump right into bed with someone, sometimes you're, I think, casting aside your right to full disclosure in those moments. If you're jumping into bed with a million people, you're signing up for a certain degree of risk of exposure to X, Y, and Z. I think people should disclose, but people typically aren't going to disclose in an insta hookup. Well, I don't think that gets you off the hook morally for failing to disclose. Um, I agree. I agree. I think people should disclose, like I said, but people shouldn't have an expectation that if they're jumping into bed with a million people, or you know, multiple partners, and there's pleasure there, and we seek pleasure, and we weigh the risks, and we we do a risk benefit analysis, and we decide the benefit of all that pleasure is worth the risk. And one of the risks you're running when you have casual sex with people that you don't know well is and you have multiple partners is you are going to risk exposure to all sorts of things. Yes, I completely agree. But again, that doesn't get the uh, the person that is giving you these viruses that doesn't get them off the hook. And I see this this is the Billy Holiday problem that just because she's willing in a hundred songs to have some man kick her around um, and she keeps coming back for more. I'm sorry, she keeps crawling back for more. That doesn't give that man the right to treat her badly. Mm-hmm. Right? The other person's willingness to endure something doesn't. To, in fact, their eagerness to endure something doesn't answer the moral problem for you. You still must decide if you want to be the person that inflicts that on them. So, but but to the HPV, she's slightly right that that many people. Even if they just jump into bed with someone, no, HPV is a part of that landscape, and they're taking that risk. Um, but nobody, I dare say, assumes they're taking the risk of bed bugs. <laughs> That's not a part of you know, the ordinary erotic landscape, is it? That, that, oh, well, of course, I'm risking bed bugs. But as somebody who's got bed bugs at home, and we don't know what that means. Like, are there bed bugs in his building? Are there bed bugs in his room? Uh, is he crawling with bedbugs? Does that person have to wear a scarlet bee everywhere he goes? No, not everywhere he goes. Only everywhere, only everywhere he's having sex. Only everywhere he's climbing into bed with someone. And, is, and should, that, assume... should, that, should that person not be allowed to stay in a hotel because he has bedbugs in his home? How, how far does um, his responsibility to remove himself from the general sleeping population, whether it's sleeping fucking or sleeping sleeping, extend? Look, I don't even think people who, who are uh, have... have colds and flu should be going to work and, and should be going to school, that, that if there's a real chance, uh, the, the higher the probability that you'll infect other people and the more serious the condition that you'll inflict on them, the, the more you have an obligation to try to avoid that. Mm-hmm. And, and the minimum obligation here for sex is disclosure. So he has to tell her, oh, uh, and I, I took the call to mean he had bed bugs in his apartment, not just in his neighborhood. You know, <laughs> I hear there are bed bugs in New York State. Uh-huh. You know, I'm from New York State. Um, so if if they're actually in his apartment, yeah, I looked this up, too, because, you know, I'm a deeply ignorant man, and I try to make up with painful plotting what I lack in knowledge. And, um, in fact, you can carry bed bugs from, from your house to other people's house, not so much on your body. Um, they, they tend to fall off you as soon as they finish sucking your blood. I feel like I'm describing, you know. It's a metaphor for something, um, but they do uh, they do linger in your clothing, and it's it's more by coming to bed dressed that he he risks it's it's that's when he risks 
So, he, so from here on out, if she wants to have him over, he has to strip in the hallway and put his clothing in a plastic yes, bag. Yes, I think that's a prudent it. standard. Yes, and, and then he can only be in her apartment naked. It's sort of a clothed female naked male scene from here on out. See, this is why you're in a big buddy, Dan. <laughs> the reasonable compromise that we can all embrace. But your your uh, ruling, your verdict as the as ethicist in this case is that they were both in the wrong. She didn't. She was obligated to expose her HPV. He was obligated to disclose the bed bugs. Yeah, and, and there's there, there's another interesting little sort of wither grass cross that that um, contracting HPV is, is a more se- has more serious medical implications. So that that increases her obligation. Um, getting bed bugs, the health risk is 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 fairly minor, but it's a huge nuisance. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have the serious um, health risk problem, but he does have a huge nuisance obligation. Well, maybe in the same way that uh, some HIV positive people and negative people serosort now. Uh, and only sleep with other people of the same serious status. Uh, people who have bed bugs should cymex lactillarius sort, uh, which is Latin for bed bugs, uh, and only sleep with other people with bed bugs. Maybe there needs to be a website, particularly for New York City, where people who have bed bugs can hook up with other people who have bed bugs. Wow, I saw a business opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Randy Cohen, he is the ethicist, or was the ethicist for the New York Times Magazine for 12 years. He's now the host of Person, Place, Thing, a terrific public radio show. Catch the podcast at Person placething.org. He's also the author of The Good, The Bad, and The Difference, How to Tell Right from Wrong in Everyday Situations by Randy Cohen. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Randy. It was a real pleasure having you. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan. This is Peter, and I am just calling to ask what you think of the use of the acronym GSRM. Uh, In other words, Gender Sexual Romance Minority. Rather than LGBTQ, whatever the acronym keeps getting expanded to, uh, I live here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I try to be as uh, positive, supportive, and inclusive as possible. But believe me, sometimes the uh, acronyms just get too damn long. And I was wondering if you, from your bully pulpit, would be able to get people to start just being more inclusive in a shorter acronym with GSRM. It seems to cover all the bases and doesn't paint anybody as uh, being included or excluded or anything. The acronym, they're too confusing, so let's keep changing them. Uh, There are some writers who've made the good point that when you say LGBT, a whole bunch of the people that we are trying to communicate to about LGBT, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, rights, don't know what that acronym means. When you say gay, they know exactly what you mean. When you say queer, they kind of know what you mean. But LGBT or LGBTQI, TSLF, Q again, A, da, 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 people kind of shut down. Even queer people shut down when you, you rattle that all off. The never-ending sort of reacronization parade, quilt bag and GRSM, I don't think that makes it less confusing. I think it makes it more and more obtuse and more and more sort of in-group exclusionary communication secret decoder ring bullshit after a while. Uh, I think that if we want one term – one ring to rule them all, one term to describe them all, I really think queer is it. Queer is genus. And everything else is species. You can identify as queer and then people go, oh, really? What kind of queer are you? And you can go queer gay, queer lesbian, queer trans, queer bi, queer agender, queer da-da-da-da-da-da-da and all the way on down the line. Queer aromantic, queer asexual, queer questioning, whatever you want to be. 
if you're looking for the easily understood, all-encompassing, all-embracing of gender, sexuality, and romantic minorities, we already have that word. And it's a word. It's not a new and confusing acronym that then someone will raise an objection to. It won't encompass somebody and there will be an objection and there will be a new acronym and then people who don't use the correct new acronym will get shit thrown at them on Tumblr and Twitter and everywhere else. You know what? Queer. Queer works. Queer is good. Let's all just embrace the word we already have that accomplishes what GRSM and – or that encompasses – see, I even got it wrong. GSRM encompasses what all of these sort of new words are allegedly being designed to accomplish. Queer already does it. Queer does. Okay, Dan, here's the problem. I uh, have a thing for a guy at work, which is nothing new in the world of humans. He's a good bit younger than me, and um, I have been avoiding any such uncomfortable situation between us, keeping it all on the up and up. Here's the thing. My company is taking us to the, Beh- the Bahamas, and this guy and I are the only single people going, and I'm pretty sure it's not explicitly said, but it's kind of implicitly said that this is a mutual attraction. So on the one hand, I got my rational mind sitting up there hoping nothing will happen. And on the other side, I've got my uh, irrational libido hoping something will happen. My question to you is, in the event that libido wins this war, do you have any practical suggestions for minimizing uncomfortable office interaction? Questions like yours tend to get me in trouble when I get questions about inter-office romance or inter-office lust and fuck and not romance at all. Uh, my attitude typically is, you know, adults, go for it. Um, and then people scream and yell at me that I don't know anything about real life workplaces and corporate America. And you know what? I kind of don't because I went from restaurants to theater to this gig uh, not that I'm fucking people at work. I have never fucked an intern or anybody else at work. I directed plays for years. I'd always cast cute boys as the eye candy parts and never touched them. And yet I got a reputation for having some sort of casting couch that I didn't have. And so I probably should have fucked them because people were accusing me of having fucked them. So I should have – anyway, that's water under the bridge. Uh, boys under the dock. I think you should go ahead and fuck this dude. But I tend to fall into the pro-fuck camp. You can't – Protect yourself 100% from you know you guys getting sore feelings or it not working out and then it being super awkward at work. The only thing you can do is before you fuck, when you are about to fuck, when you guys when it's clear that fucking is probably going to be in the offing, while your clothes are still on, while you're still in the bar having a drink, just say you know office romances, office fuck buddies that can go south and then everybody can feel really awkward and awful. So let's just agree right now while we're – when we're liking each other so much and the endorphins are flowing that if it goes south, if it doesn't work out, we're going to be kind and nice to each other. We're going to power through the awkwardness and remember why we liked each other well enough to want to fuck each other in the first place. So even if it doesn't work out, we won't be shitty to each other. Is that a guarantee that if it doesn't work out, you won't be shitty to each other at work and that it won't be super awkward? No. But you guys are likelier to strive to keep it from getting super duper shitty or super duper fucking awkward if it doesn't work out. If you are recalling and remembering that promise you made each other. If things are getting awkward, you can call that promise back and say, 
if things are super awkward and there's like a silence and a pall when you two are in the room, to for you or he to be able to go to each other and say, remember what we said to each other over the margaritas and the Mai Tais in bah- the Bahamas? We said that we would power through this and remember why we liked each other. So even though, you know, shitty things happen and we're not fucking anymore, I like you and let's be decent to each other at work or we're going to create problems for each other at work and that's not what we want. One of you adults up and says that and it can lance the boil. So if I were you, I'd fuck him, but I'd make that promise. And then if shit went south, I would invoke the promise. Hi, Dan. I'm a lesbian woman calling from the East Coast. Here's my question. Right before my wife has an intense orgasm, she sometimes travels to different places in her mind or um, like different places in the world or time periods. Like, for example, she's gone to China um, she's hung out with wolves in Russia, and she's partied in the 1920s Great Gatsby style. These are not sexual thoughts or fantasies, and she feels as though she has no control over them. It's completely random. Recently, the experience intensified, and she felt as though she actually left her body and was just an energy in a very specific and random time and place in the 1800s. But she had a difficult time putting into words exactly what happened while she was there. She has no history of trauma or abuse. These experiences happen when she's completely sober and only right before Oregon. We've been married for five years, and she's a happy and well-adjusted individual with a doctoral degree, so trust me when I say this is not just her being dramatic or weird. These experiences are neither good or bad for her, just kind of strange. So anyways, we're just wondering what's going on, Dan, and we're wondering if anyone else out there experiences similar types of these things or can explain these experiences. Unfortunately, Google's been no help, so we're hoping that you can be. Thanks, Dan. It strikes me as interesting that when you meet people who have these out-of-body time travel experiences that they never wind up in, like, Gary, Indiana in 1985 for no reason whatsoever, right? They always wind up someplace interesting, running with wolves in Russia, Great Gatsby, partying style 1920s um you know in the court of the russian czar we're building the pyramids it's always something interesting when most of what's happened uh, to most humans for most of recorded human history is really fucking boring shit but nobody has an out of body time travel experience to of dinner with the family 180 years ago that was completely unremarkable and overcooked and not well salted. It's always something crazy, fun, exciting, glamorous, which, you know, that's dream state. You know, you don't dream about boring bullshit. You dream about incredible shit. So maybe there's something about an orgasm, the approach of an orgasm, the way your wife's brain is wired, the way that chemical soup that is her consciousness is composed. It just like taps into some cinematic imprint, memory, whatever, and she just kind of blasts there for a second. I don't know. And Google doesn't know, as you discovered and I discovered. Maybe other people out there listening have had similar experiences. Maybe there's somebody out there listening who does know, but I don't know. And I don't want to say that your wife is a woo-woo nut. Uh, She's got a PhD. She doesn't attach – if she did attach crazy significant sort of goddess power significance to this crap – uh, I'm sure you would have said that. It sounds like she just goes there and is a little like, that was crazy, mystified and rational about it. If She was being crazy irrational about it and she thought this meant that she was some sort of priestess or a more interesting person than the average orgasmic female that you would have mentioned that. You didn't mention that. So she doesn't do that, I hope. My feeling though is that 
other people who may have these experiences and I bet some people who are hearing this will start having these experiences because people are suggestible around this shit. Um, maybe lying, maybe attempting to make themselves more interesting emotionally, sexually, socially than they actually are by claiming – as someone I once knew did, that when I have an orgasm, the room is full of angels and celestial beings and I can see them in my orgasmic state. I'm like, really? Uh, I don't think so. I think you're just uh, making that up. And some people do make shit up to make themselves more interesting. Not saying that's the case with your wife. If that was the case with your wife, I do again believe that she would be attaching some greater significance to all of this. If she is just as mystified as you, as I, as probably everyone listening is, then she's not some woo-woo nut. She's just having some weird chemical brain soup flash when she orgasms. If there are other people out there who are having those same sorts of flashes, give us a call. We will play your comments and responses and thoughts on a future show. Hi, Dan. I am uh, 37, straight, white. I live in the South. Uh, I am an atheist, and I'm calling about your advice to the uh, nice southern lady who is dating a black guy. And I desperately want to be surrounded by people like I could find in Seattle, in Los Angeles, or San Francisco, Portland, Boston. But I am tied down. I have roots. And God damn it, Dan, I want... North Carolina and Alabama and places like this to look like that. And it's not going to happen when we move. The answer is not for us to leave. The answer is for us to fight, to save these people sometimes from themselves and from their ridiculous, shitty, tiny, backwards upbringing. I'm here in the trenches with a lot of people like me. And we don't need to move. We need to fight. Uh, hi, this is for the caller that was concerned about her interracial marriage in the South. Look, you may be in a very small town, but you can move. You can move not just to New York City or Seattle. You can move to a bigger city where you live, You know, maybe a, a college town. If you're in Alabama, you can move to Huntsville, Birmingham, Tuscaloosa, Mobile, move to Atlanta, Savannah, Charleston, Raleigh. You know, there are places to go. Find something that you're close enough to for your kids to see his dad when they need to. You know, I know the court can really put a, a crunch on that, but you're far enough away that it won't matter anymore. And those people that you claim are family friends that are going to care, they're not your friends. They don't matter. Get them off your Facebook. Get them off your Twitter. Find some happiness in your life. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 381, especially Hannah Rosen's response. I'm kind of surprised at the response because if this woman told her ex-boyfriend that she wanted to be left alone and break up with him because she was too busy, I mean, we need to think about what a commitment law school is. And asking him to go back after her when she's made it clear kind of makes it feel like Maybe her opinion isn't valid. Maybe she didn't break up with him because of that. I'm also surprised at the sort of a get him, get her back tactic as well, because it seems like, you know, those are things you should be doing anyway. If you're in a relationship with someone who's in professional school or still in school or has a demanding career, regardless of their gender, you should try to support them, especially if it's a woman, you know, going to law school and having a guy as her partner 
if he's not supporting her, then he's a, basically a terrible partner. And this is a huge problem with heterogamous relationships where you have the guy who thinks he can just kind of do whatever he wants while the woman works her ass off because that's what uh, popular movies, which Hannah Rosen cites, and popular culture teach him. And that's bullshit. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Find out if the Big Hump Tour is coming to your city at www.humptour.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Randy Cohen, ex-ethicist and host of Person, Place, Thing on Twitter at Randy Landia. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>